Good morning, everyone. Today, I'm continuing our series of reflections on the Psalms that we're calling Rest and Reset, and I'll be reflecting on Psalm 126. Unlike the two previous Psalms that we've looked at, this isn't one penned by King David. This is one that comes about 400 years after those, which is a really long time. If you think about it, that's the difference between a song written now and a song written, say, by Guy Fawkes, who probably should have chosen music as a career option. But anyway, Psalm 126 was probably written during or not long after the exile in Babylon. Most English translators assume that it was written after their return, and they use the past tense to describe the sorrow of that time. But right now, we're going to hear from a translation that assumes a perspective from within and during exile. Both of these options are valid, but this particular translation captures some of that bewildered mood of what now and what next. And I think that that mood in many ways reflects our own situation as we live in lockdown due to COVID-19 right now. But anyway, here is Psalm 126, read by Kate. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restores Zion's fortunes, we should be like dreamers. Then will our mouth fill with laughter and our tongue with glad song. Then will they say in the nations, great things has the Lord done with these. Great things has the Lord done with us. We shall rejoice. Restore, O Lord, our fortunes like freshets in the Negeb. They who sow in tears in glad song will reap. He walks along and weeps, the bearer of the seed bag. But he will surely come in with glad song, bearing his sheaves. Thanks, Kate. So I'm going to say a few things about the psalm itself before I get all deep and meaningful about its particular significance to me. Because it's important that when we read the Bible, we don't lose sight of things like its original setting and its original meaning before getting too carried away with what it means to me. So this psalm is one of 15 psalms that are grouped together and called Songs of Ascent. No one really knows for certain what this means, but most think that it has something to do with some kind of journey or pilgrimage towards the temple in Jerusalem. So these songs uh, take seriously that part of worship is our preparation for worship. In the vineyard we love to invite people to come as you are, but coming as we are actually requires us to reflect on where we are and what is going on in our lives. We don't leave all of that behind. And I just want to say a quick note about that. We, we sometimes think that worship is about leaving the raw reality of our experience behind as we come into contact with eternal truths. Now we do, of course, absolutely come into contact with eternal truths, but worship is where those truths meet and interact with our real lived experience. So just like the temple itself was the intersection between heaven and earth, worship is the intersection between God's unchanging worthiness 
with, by contrast, the ever-changing story and scenery of our lives. So these songs of ascent, they're all about preparing ourselves to worship with honesty and integrity about who we are and where we are. As for when this song was written, like I said, it was either written during exile or just after it. It works either way because it's really a reflection on the changing seasons of sadness and gladness. If it was written during exile, it's clear that it expresses a time of great sorrow and tears, but it looks forward with certainty that in the fullness of time, those tears will be transformed into songs of joy. But if written after exile, on the return to Jerusalem, it also carries a poignant note because although it reflects how the tears of the past have now become songs of joy, there is still a desperate prayer in the song. In verse 4, where it says, Restore us, O Lord, like streams in the desert. So a quick uh, historical note that might help us here. During the exile, all the people longed for was to return to Jerusalem. And when they were eventually allowed to return, they very quickly rebuilt a temple, since the first had been completely destroyed. And as the foundation stone for this new temple was laid, there were shouts of joy, but there was also the noise of loud weeping. It's a story that's recorded in the book of Ezra, chapter 3, if you want to look it up. It's a really bittersweet moment where there are people who are seeing God's promises come to life, but also within their living memory is the pain of seeing the original temple destroyed. So you have sadness and gladness mixed together, mingled in the same moment. And what's more, the return to Jerusalem was nothing like the silver bullet that solved all of their problems. They were still a bewildered nation under the thumb of successive foreign regimes when after another few centuries Jesus came and walked among them and found them utterly bereft of uh, God's presence. So whichever direction you read this psalm in, whether forwards or backwards, the psalm reflects on the changing seasons of sadness and gladness. And it also reflects on the various postures of the heart that are appropriate during those seasons. So for example, in verse 1, when the Lord restores Zion's fortunes, when the Lord restores, there's recognition there that it is the Lord and not they who will bring about the necessary change. And in verses 2 and 3, they say everyone will proclaim that God has done great things with us. So the posture of the heart there is that it's not us that brought about our great fortune, it was God. To him goes the glory and the fame. And in verse 4, the prayer, Restore, O Lord, our fortunes like streams in the desert. So the posture of the heart there is, God, even though you have been so good, so faithful to us, Lord, we pray for more. We know there must be more. And then in verses 5 and 6, the posture of the heart 
is the knowledge that weeping will not be permanent, but that, we'll want, that we will once again sing songs of joy and gladness. So that's some reflections on the psalm itself, but now to the reason why I've chosen to speak about this psalm specifically. And speaking uh, very personally, I am a man of great fluctuations of spirit and emotion, and I tend towards one extreme or another, either great joy or great sadness. And I'm not suggesting that this is either healthy or unhealthy, but at the moment it's simply an observation about my personality. But even if you are not prone to moving from one extreme to another, I'm sure that every one of you can relate to some extent. Because whatever we think life should be, or whatever we want it to be, we all have to contend with the reality that life is a constant revolution of changing seasons. And in, in the Bible, in Ecclesiastes, uh, in chapter 3, the emo-existentialist philosopher proclaims in his famous poem that there is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens. He talks about a time for birth and a time for death, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time for weeping and a time for laughing, and a time for mourning and a time for dancing. Although you won't get me dancing. The closest you'll ever get to seeing me dancing is when I'm rocking out on electric guitar. But anyway, the point is this, that we all have ideas of what we want life to look like. But those ideas rarely include what seem such negative alternatives. Uprooting, tearing down, weeping, mourning. But night follows day, just as sure as day follows night. Autumn and winter follow spring and summer, just as surely as those darker seasons will come around again. And that is healthy. It is the way that God has ordained the world to turn. So let's Stop expending energy trying to make the world stop turning as though we could have the world freeze in whatever is our favourite season. Because part of the cycle for the harvest is a hard frost. So this psalm helps me to reflect not on my supposed ideals, but on my reality. And in terms of the posture of my heart, it causes me to relocate my trust. I don't trust in the coming of my supposed ideals and say, if only this or if only that. But my trust is located in the loving, faithful God who both gives and takes away. So it's not in my dreams and my ambitions that I trust, but it's in his wisdom. I also see in this psalm a reflection of how sadness 
and gladness are both entirely legitimate emotions. And I see how my spiritual posture during those seasons shouldn't be to stew in either the circumstances for my sadness or the circumstances for my joy, but simply to reflect on the goodness and faithfulness of God. Sadness will follow joy. Joy will follow sadness. But the goodness and the faithfulness of God is constant and unchanging. This psalm encourages real talk and real tears, as well as real songs and real laughter. It gives me permission to say that during this time of lockdown, I'm struggling. I hate it. But this psalm also helps me to realise that though this time of tears is really difficult, it may in fact be a time of sowing where we put seeds into the ground, not knowing quite what they're going to look like or what they're going to turn into, or even what they're for, until sometime later when they're fully grown and they're ready for the harvest. But this psalm gives me space to be real about the fact that while sowing, there is weeping. It may be productive time, it may be meaningful time, but those things do not necessarily entail a joyful time. It's painful, and we don't just get to spin it by simply proclaiming it as productive, productive and meaningful, because that leads to, leads to some sort of weird doublethink where we're supposed to be happy when we're actually sad. We're not supposed to be anything except perhaps expectant that God will bring his promises to fruition. So be sad or be happy and seek God. There will be fruit, but right now there are just seeds. For me, this is a time for weeping. And so depending on how you read this psalm, it functions as both a lament and a song of gladness. It's one of those both and moments that we so love in the vineyard. The answer to the question of whether it's a celebration song or a lament is yes. I'm just going to end though by uh, giving you some ideas about how to respond to different seasons from one of my favourite thinkers, Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits. And then I'm going to read uh, just a little piece from the New Testament. So Ignatius, he understood that our souls often move according to our circumstances, either towards the good, which he called times of consolation, or times of bad, which he called desolation. In other words, there are times we feel consoled and times we feel desolate, and those are often determined by our circumstances. And he developed spiritual disciplines to help those in his order of Jesuits not to fall victim to circumstances, but instead to learn how to know and praise God in all circumstances. And one of the reasons that we slip into desolation, he says, is that we may learn and understand that it is not in our own power to acquire or even retain what we have during times of consolation, but that 
These are gifts and a grace from God. But nevertheless, he does teach that someone who is presently in consolation should spend time thinking of how to conduct oneself during some future desolation and thus build up a strength for that time. In other words, make hay while the sun shines. But if you do find yourself in desolation, you should stand firm and constant in the resolution and the decision that guided you before your desolation. Because in times of desolation, the voice that so often creeps in will counsel us to abandon those resolutions and decisions, even claiming that it was those resolutions and decisions that has led to your desolation. So what I mean to say, folks, is that the decision you made to trust in God was a good decision. And no amount of effort can help you to feel consoled if at this time you feel desolate. But instead you should trust in the unfailing love of God and he will give you consolation as a gift. And if you're hearing this and you've not yet made a decision to trust God, let me tell you that to do so clearly does not guarantee that your life will be free of trouble. But it does guarantee that there is a secure foundation for hope, that the tears we sow will one day be reaped in a harvest of joy. So put your trust in him. I just want to end by reading from a letter that Peter, friend and disciple of Jesus, wrote to those in need of encouragement. It's in 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Because like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith. For you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.